You can now become a premium member of the podcast with exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, and items available nowhere else. I'll also be asking members questions and getting feedback to find out exactly what you want to see and hear. To keep this super affordable, it starts at just $2 per month. This may just be the most inexpensive and valuable acting class you'll ever take. Go to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to join. This is episode number 12 with Dakin Matthews. Coming up. It was that point that I thought, holy cow, this is what theater could be? And I thought, this is more than, this would be more than a hobby for me, I think. But it was not what the audiences or the critics wanted to see, so I was a little depressed that I didn't live up to their expectations. It's not the actual compensation that makes you a professional. It's the level of craft and commitment at which you work. Oh my God, he's got his sword. He's going to kill Romeo. And Romeo's going to show up any minute. So I better get there quick. Boom. A completely insane reason to drink the vodka. Everybody lives by some fiction that they concoct about what life is. I think art is a nice one. Hey there, thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agin. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. 
And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good. And I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage, and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero read by Ray Porter. Chapter 1 when you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show for the season finale is Dakin Matthews. He's an actor, a playwright, dramaturg, director, teacher, and Shakespeare scholar. Now, thank you so much for joining us, whether this is your first episode or you've been along for the whole season. It's been a fantastic journey, and I'm thrilled to close it out here with Dakin. Not only is this a great conversation, we also get a mini Shakespeare masterclass from one of the best people in the country, so be sure to stick around for that. Actually, during that part of the chat, I was pretty conscious of not saying wow every few seconds as Dakin worked through the monologue, but when I listen back to the interview, that is absolutely what I feel. I mean, there are so many great insights into the text. Now, Dagan has had a pretty extraordinary career and traversed an unusual path, and I'm thrilled that he's here to share his journey and what he's learned along the way. We recorded this in his study in his home in Los Angeles, and he's got a full house these days with dogs and kids and grandkids, so you might hear little sounds from his desk or books or a little bit of background noise, but you can still easily hear everything we say. To be totally honest, I was really nervous interviewing Dakin because, to me, he's such a giant in the theater world. And it's funny, I mentioned being nervous for my first interview with Ben Whitehair, and I'm just as much, if not more so, with Dakin. It's kind of ironic that we actually talk about being nervous around him because I was probably too nervous to tell Dakin that I was nervous interviewing him. But it was actually a really fun chat, and I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Dakin is still such a busy guy, and I really appreciate he made time for this, and I'm very, very grateful. Now, Dakin has quite a bio, so buckle in. 
He's an emeritus professor of English at California State University, East Bay in Hayward, California, and he attended graduate school at NYU. He began his stage career in the San Francisco Bay Area, appearing in both the Marin and California Shakespeare Festivals. He acted and taught at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and at the Juilliard School in New York. He was artistic director of the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, the California Actors Theater, the Antius Company, which he co-founded, and the Andac Stage Company. He is an associate artist of the Old Globe Theater and a founding acting member of John Houseman's The Acting Company and Sam Mendes' Bridge Project. He has written verse translations of six 17th-century Spanish comedies, and his play Capulets and Montagues won the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Adaptation. He's been a regular at Center Theater Group in Los Angeles and South Coast Repertory in Costa Mesa, California, and he has acted and directed at many other regional theaters. Stage work includes numerous productions of Shakespeare and Shaw, and he appeared in Romeo and Juliet, directed by Sir Peter Hall. He has 150-plus credits on IMDb with a 30-plus year career on screen. Not bad for someone who got started relatively late in life. Film work includes Steven Spielberg's Lincoln and Bridge of Spies and the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit. He was a series regular on Soul Man with Dan Aykroyd, The Jeff Foxworthy Show, and The Office. He's also been a recurring character on Gilmore Girls, Desperate Housewives, The Mentalist, and King of Queens. He has appeared on Broadway in Henry IV with Kevin Kline and Ethan Hawke, A Man for All Seasons with Frank Langella, Rocky the Musical as Mickey the Trainer, with Helen Mirren in the audience as Winston Churchill, in Waitress the Musical, and he is scheduled to appear in two more Broadway shows this year, The Iceman Cometh with Denzel Washington and an Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird with Jeff Daniels. He has been a dramaturg on Broadway for the aforementioned Henry IV, for Macbeth with Ethan Hawke, both directed by Jack O'Brien, and for Julius Caesar with Denzel Washington, directed by Daniel Sullivan. Dakin won a special Drama Desk Award for his adaptation of Shakespeare's Henry IV, which combined both parts into one play, and he won a Bayfield Award for his performance in that show. His handbook on verse speaking, Shakespeare Spoken Here, has been used in universities and training programs throughout California and he has given master classes in Shakespearean acting around the world. Now, even after talking to Dakin and asking the question, I seriously still do not know how he's done all of this. But in today's episode, we cover where he feels confident and when he gets intimidated, his path from studying to be a priest to teaching high school algebra to acting, how he developed his acting skills despite never taking classes, why doing the classics and being in a repertory company can be so important for actors, landing a starring role at Center Theater Group in The History Boys and the critical reception that production received, what qualities distinguish him from other actors and why he stands out, 
what being a professional actor means to him, and much, much more. As you can already tell, Dakin has accomplished quite a bit, and he has so much to share. He's made a huge impact on my life and education, especially with Shakespeare, and I feel deeply honored to have studied and worked with him, and I'm so excited to share his story and wisdom. So here we go with the first season finale, episode number 12. Please enjoy my chat with Dakin Matthews. It's a beautiful space. I can only imagine for yourself that you know you've been there since the beginning. It's it's kind of extraordinary to see. Kind of nice. Yeah, yeah, I was just there last night, and in fact, we had the Playwrights Lab last night. Which okay, is, we have a playwrights unit. You know, we're a classical company, but we have an ensemble, so uh, not many playwrights are writing classical plays these days. Right. But basically, the playwrights and the actors go there together, and the actors read, you know, six to twelve pages of each playwright's new work, you know, hmm. and they get to hear it, they get to learn, and they get, you know, critique, and they get praise and criticism, and uh, it's all very, it's it's lovely. I've done two or three of them myself, and I submit some my pages every once in a mm-hmm. while, too, so it's a good deal. Is it is it more just kind of workshopping, or, or is the idea that these might become plays that NTS uh, may do? I think point? down the line, at some point, especially if we get the second space operating, we might be able to... Mm-hmm. To do that, but now it's just a, a convenient place for uh, LA playwrights to gather and be sure they'll always have actors there to help them read. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was remarking to Robert that the library almost has a similar feel to the place on Lancashire. Like it, it, the same. I don't know if it was the wall colors the same or something, but there was something that it's, it's like, just all those damn books. <laughs> it just looks like this room. <laughs> and, and and I think it was. Robin, I met. She's like, oh, yeah, Dakin and John have said, no more books now. We need to yeah, go through. four or five boxes showed up. I can't believe it. So at this point, you're a company member, and, and yeah, you submit so. plays, and, and you guys do plays, uh, do your plays from time to time? or uh, No, I don't think so now. You know, my I had my other little theater for about 12 right. years around the corner. From is, is that building still there? The that Ant- building's still there, okay. yeah. I, saw, uh, I, um, I was renting it. And I transferred the lease to somebody else and sold them all my theater equipment. So, so I'm sort of out of the producing business now. Okay. Now, now you're just focusing on acting and writing and all the other. Yeah, jobs. whatever. Else <laughs> Drama, I can do. Church, and all the other, the other six jobs. I mean, if have. I end up writing a play that I, they did a reading of one of my plays uh, last year. In the, uh, you know, we organized a reading of one of the plays last year, which was, uh, which was interesting. I wasn't there for it. I was back in New York. So, are you? Do you consider yourself? Are you a bi-coastal actor now? Well, I'm bi-coastal. I haven't acted in L.A. since I think uh, the Nether and uh, Yes, Prime Minister, which was about three or four years ago. Okay, and because you've been so doing most the- of my acting has been in New York, yeah, and uh, most of the grown-up television shoots in New York. You know, most of the procedurals where they need older people who are judges and lawyers and things right, like that. Right, I mean, the, right. the, the yeah, the, the hour-longs. Okay. Pretty much all shoot in New York. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? There was one thing I couldn't find is like anything. Are you an only child? No, no. I have six brothers and sisters. You have six? Oh, wow. I have a brother and five sisters. Wow. Okay. Um, Um, yes, brother and five sisters. (laughs) So your, your dad was Portuguese. Yeah. Yes. So did he, do you know Portuguese? Did he speak that? No. No. He, uh, his, his parents came over, uh, from the Azores through Hawaii. 
uh, as cane cutters and then migrated after they worked off their passage. You know, ships would leave Lisbon half full and then they stop at the Azores and bring on anybody who wanted to emigrate. Oh, wow. Sail them around the Horn to Hawaii. And if they cut, cut sugarcane for five years, they worked off their passage. Wow. And they could, some of them stayed there. A lot of them uh, came. To California, to San Diego, San Leandro, Half Moon Bay, the three major places where they came. Were you born out in Hawaii? Or no, I was born in... No, this is my grandfather. Oh, this is your grandfather? Yeah. Okay. My father was born in California, and uh, he actually grew up speaking a little Portuguese. In fact, when he, my sisters and I bought him a trip back to the Azores for his 80-something birthday, I think it was, and he found that he was speaking Portuguese when he got back there, but... Like a five-year-old speaks Portuguese. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he had a great time. Yeah. And all your siblings, are any of them in the arts no, as well? No, no. They're mostly all nurses and teachers, I think. I mean, you know, it was obviously, even for yourself, it was a bit of a circuitous route for you to get to acting. Yeah, no, it was never my intention to act. So it was sort of jumped up and surprised me, basically. You know, one of the things that, that strikes me about you, Dakin, is you always seem to have this confidence. I'm just curious. Ah, fooled you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, of course. It's like the more I think about it, it's like, well, of course, he's human. He has, he deals with all the things that anyone deals with. But there does seem to be that a confidence, whether it's with your writing or, or the dramaturgy or acting. And was that something that started young? Was it instilled by your parents? Is it something that you've always kind of had? Like, oh, I can do this kind of can do. I have it in areas where I feel that I've grounded myself enough to be confident. I'm extremely unconfident outside my areas of expertise. I don't actually take on or commit myself or write much about things that I don't think I know about. You know, it took me, it's taken me a lot of years to actually begin writing extensively about Shakespeare. Really? Because I feel like, okay, now I know enough. I, I really hate to write anything that I don't know enough about. So I try to stay within my, my areas of expertise. And there I am pretty confident because I tend to, I tend to study stuff for a long time before I talk about it. And that was something interesting is, you know, because I know you've, you've taught Shakespeare at a number of different places over a number of different years. Yeah. Were, you, were you teaching Shakespeare at ACT and Juilliard? A little bit of, at ACT, a little bit. At Juilliard, not so much. A little bit. And I was teaching mostly text and theater history at Juilliard. But I taught it at uh, USD San Diego, which was the, the old Globe program. I okay. taught it there. And I teach master classes now. I taught it at the university when I was a university professor. And did you feel like... You know, that I, that, that feeling that a lot of us get, like, that you were a fraud at the time, like someone's gonna find me out that I don't know what um, I'm talking about? No, I had, uh, when I, when I, um, started in, in English, which was when I was 24, actually, I started formally studying English in graduate school. I went to, uh, Cal State, was now called Cal State East Bay, it was called Cal State Hayward at the time. And the department was lousy with Shakespearean professors. So, I, when I took my master's in English there, I had a really good grounding in Shakespeare. But the other thing I did have is I had acted in a couple of Shakespeare plays when extracurricularly, you know, in college. And um, when you act in a Shakespeare play, you've come to an understanding of it different from when you've just studied it. You've actually been inside its bones. You know, you've been inside its body, as it were. You, you're intimate with it. You've had intimate relations with a Shakespeare sure. play. As, as opposed to, to worshiping it from afar, you, right. you've dated it. You've slept with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whenever I taught Shakespeare, 
especially if I was teaching uh, plays that I had been in or directed, I, I did feel a certain confidence because I actually had been with the, you know, you live, well, as you know, if you work on a Shakespeare play, you rehearse it for six weeks, you perform for six weeks, you've lived with a play for three months, you right. know, you get to know it. So I think the confidence probably came out of that. And also, you know, before I was an actor, you know, my studies in philosophy and theology were very grounded in uh, the kinds of knowledge of uh, early modern thinking, so that nothing, uh, nothing about Shakespeare's thought processes or the concerns that he had seemed alien to me. A lot of people now who will come to study Shakespeare have never studied 14th century, 15th century, 16th century literature and culture. If you're studying philosophy and theology, especially if you're studying, you know, in the Christian tradition, th that's your bread and butter from Thomas Aquinas uh, up to the uh, Christian humanism of the 16th century. That's meat and potatoes. So, so it almost sounds by accident you were set up rather well yeah. for all of this, yeah. you know, continued yeah. study in, in Shakespeare and, and, yeah. and all that dramaturgical... And, 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 you know, Shakespeare's era was an era of extreme uh, religious and philosophical concern because it was right after the Protestant Reformation, and so there was theology was in the air all the time. Philosophy was in the air all the time. Earliest books that were ever published were almost almost always. I mean, the, the vast majority of printing during Shakespeare's age was on theological subjects. So you know, you're sort of prepared for that. Yeah, right? I couldn't have been happier. And we had, you know, and, and we had a good class. I had a good classical education. Uh, I went to a school that was, you know, like college prep. And, and uh, you, you studied Latin, and you studied Greek, and you studied literature. You know. It was a very, very liberal arts kind of uh, uh, curriculum. So, you're, you're, yeah, unbeknownst to myself, I was being prepared for my life as a Shakespearean. You know, I definitely want to get into, you know, your, your transition to acting, but a, a little kind of connected to confidence is, do you ever get intimidated? Because that's another thing that, you know, certainly around Antaeus, there can often be a feeling of being intimidated by some of the other actors there in the company, but I'm just wondering, do you ever experience being feeling intimidated with directors you've worked with uh, because of their body of work or actors? Because I mean, you've worked with a lot of big names, both on stage and screen. Yeah. And does that ever? Do you no, ever... I have never felt that. I've never. I, I don't know why. I probably should have been. <laughs> you know, if I am in the presence of a really first-rate Shakespeare scholar, I'm. 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 I'm not intimidated, but I'm in awe. Okay. You know, or people who, for example, my, you know, I, I read a fair number of languages. None of them, I don't speak any of them well. If I'm in the presence of somebody who's really a linguist, I find it admirable. I, I, I'm not intimidated because I know I'd be intimidated if I were trying to fake it. Sure. You know what I mean? So, I've never felt that I'm faking it. So I've never, never been worried about being exposed. I guess that's. The closest I've come to intimidation in the recent history, and that's been a really great experience for me, is suddenly I find myself working on musical comedies on Broadway. Right. Which is way out of my, <laughs> way out of my level of expertise. You know, I, I've never taken a singing lesson in my life. I've sang choir for many years, but I don't dance. And suddenly you're working with these young Broadway ensemble actors who could sing. Triple threats, yeah. Triple threats, sing, dance, and act. <laughs> They're very positive. They can do stuff that I can't possibly do. And that has been a great experience for me, working so far out of my comfort zone that 
rather than being intimidated, I've just enjoyed it. Hmm. You know, if somebody told me I had to do a dance, however, on Broadway, or I did a workshop one time where we had to sort of do kind of dancing, and I was just, I couldn't remember a combination to save my life. So I was not intimidated. I was simply humiliated. (laughs) Have you ever noticed or picked up on younger actors or other actors being intimidated by you? Oh, God. I suppose it's happened, but I hope not. I I hope not. Uh, Only thing that I hope, you know, I know I have a pretty good estimate of my level of, of skill. And what I hope is that by working with me, people, rather than being intimidated, are are somehow elevated. Sure. I try to treat every actor that I work with as an absolute peer and assume that we're going to work at exactly the same level. Well, if you have, you know, if there is a younger actor, someone who's, you certainly hasn't done as much Shakespeare as you and, and still figuring out their way. And maybe they come in with some of those nerves of like, oh, geez, you know, Dakin's on this production, yeah, whether yeah. you're drama, you know, being the dramaturge or acting or, or what have you. What would you recommend to someone in that position if they're feeling those kind of nerves? And not necessarily that they they're trying to fake it, but they want to work, you know, at that level. But they just know there's that. Yeah, gap. yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, well, when you're working with somebody as an actor, there's not a lot. You know, you try to put them at their ease. That's all. But the director is really in charge of how that relationship works. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a teacher, if they come in intimidated because I'm a teacher, you know, they have to get up and do a monologue for me or something like that. That's easy. You just keep keep everything very humorous and you focus entirely on the text. That's the most important thing they could do is just say, what does that word mean? What does he want? What's it? You know, you, you move their concerns away from what I think they're doing or how I think they're doing onto just look at say, you can do this. You know, it's the, it's a little bit like Socrates and the Pythagorean theorem. You can do this. You can just look at it. Just, just keep looking at it. Keep reading it. You have the natural ability to do this because it's just, it's just human behavior, you know? Right. So the more you focus on, on them dealing with the material in front of them, then instead of them dealing with me, that's the most important thing. I don't think people, I don't want people to be, you know, or should, they shouldn't be afraid of me. It's, it's, it's a terrifying experience to do a monologue for me. I know that. <laughs> but it's terrifying not because I'm there, but because the text is very demanding. And if you show them a way to get into the text, then that, that all that sort of fear, mm-hmm. personal fear, should dissipate, I think. Okay. So when you knew you wanted to pursue this a little bit more than just something as an extracurricular, was that when... You were working with John Houseman at Juilliard? Was that when you first No, started? that happened. Um, I remember, I kind of remember when that happened. My first two acting jobs, not in college. My very first sort of semi-professional acting job. I was teaching uh, high school at the time. And one of my uh, colleagues knew uh, that we were talking about Shakespeare. I was teaching Shakespeare. I was teaching, he was in the English department. I was teaching algebra, I think. And the Bible. We, but we chatted a lot, and he knew that I had done Shakespeare when I was in college. I had done Henry IV, Part One, and and I was working in a little community theater, doing community theater at the time, because it seemed like a way to meet girls. <laughs> or also, it just I felt when I did extracurricular uh, theater in college, I always felt 
very much at home there. It always felt like this is a good place to be. This, this, I also knew that I had that I did have natural skills and uh, kind of an obligation to pursue them. So the extracurricular work that I did in the theater was very rewarding and it was great. But, you know, that wasn't I never thought it was going to be a job. Anyway, I was I was teaching, and he said, "You know, I see there's a local Shakespeare festival that's uh, going to do Henry Four Part One. Why don't Why don't you audition for it?" And I had done Falstaff when I was 23, I think. And I said, "Oh, I don't know." He says, "Why not? It's summertime. It doesn't. It won't conflict with your teaching." So I thought, "Oh, okay. I'll, I'll do it. What do you? How do you? What do you do?" He says, "He said you audition." I didn't know what that meant particularly. So I thought, "Oh, okay." So I. I went to audition with this thing with my Rockwell Kent Shakespeare, gigantic volume, gigantic, heavy volume of Shakespeare, and uh, a blue suit, because I thought you had to look good when you auditioned. I didn't have any black shoes, so I had brown shoes and a blue suit, and a tie, I wore a tie, I think. And I show up in this outdoor, in this amphitheater, and it's about 100 degrees, and I'm carrying this gigantic book around. Dressed like I was going to a cocktail party, a bad cocktail party, reading, and they offered me the bar. <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was twenty four. I thought, oh, mother, and it was fun. I had a really good time. There were girls there too. That was nice. And I thought, well, this will work out. I can do these little Shakespeare festivals in the summertime, and I can then teach in the regular year. And all the teach all the Shakespeare that I do will feed into my teaching because I will know the plays better. And I did that for a couple of years. But I remember that first year we were doing it, and there was a there was a Shakespeare festival in the South Bay. This is up in the Bay Area, South Bay, attached to the University of Santa Clara. That was kind of more professional than what I was in. And they were also doing Henry IV, Part One. Our reviews came out on the same day. Ours was a rave, and theirs was, you know, not very good. It was like these kids, these university kids, you know. But I thought it'd be fun to go down and see it. So I talked everybody into in our show into renting a bus and, and driving down there to see this little Shakespeare company, this little college company do Henry Four Part One. And we arrived and it was in this warehouse, this Quonset Hut warehouse. Really tacky, trashy. We all thought, well, we'll, we'll be understanding. We'll be forgiving, you know. We came to sit down, and this thing started, and it was the most beautiful, brilliant production I had ever seen in my life. And I had not seen much theater in my life at this particular point. And I tell you, I, 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 it was a very quiet bus ride home, because I think everybody knew how really different and good hmm. they were. It was a group that I later joined a couple of years later, but it was that point that I thought, holy cow, this is what theater could be? And I thought, I, I, <laughs> this is more than, this will be more than a hobby for me, I think. If those people, I went back the next year and saw them do two more plays, and that was it. Boy, I was nailed. I began to feel that, that, that I should be doing this more than just as a hobby. And after a couple of years of doing that, I started getting offers to do theater full-time, you know, during the academic year. Up to now, it had only been summertime. So I went to the chairman of the department and said, I'm getting some, you know, interesting stuff to do. Uh, and the department was really good because I always took all my acting as professional work, equivalent to publishing. So that was good for me as a university professor. And I said, uh, I get, I'm getting a lot of acting offers during the year. 
So eventually what it came down to is I offered to take all the 8 o'clock classes, <laughs> if it, even at Med Freshman Comp. So I did for a number of years. I taught from 8 to 12, mm-hmm. rehearsed from 1 to 5, and performed from 7 to 11 and for a number of years at, at various theaters all around the Bay Area and, and, and had two job, two professional jobs simultaneously for a number of years. Was this in your early 30s? or Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is funny because a lot, you know, that's for a lot of people, they're starting maybe 10 years earlier trying to, you know, get into this. Did you feel like you were behind the curve at all or, or just because of your training, you felt kind of, you know, on the same well, level? Well, I think what happened is many of the companies that I worked with were younger than I was. Mm-hmm. So that I was kind of, I was playing the character man when I was 20 <laughs> years old, so right. 20, 25, 30 years old. I was very fortunate. It was just a time in the Bay Area Theater that were a lot of talented people. I mean, uh, this group that I joined after a couple of years was, you know, David Augustyers and Kurtwood Smith and mm-hmm. Liz Huddle. I mean, it was like this incredible group of really good actors. And then later on uh, at PCPA, uh, you know, you're working with the best actors and both from L.A. and San Francisco. So I was just, everywhere I went, I actually found myself thrown in with some really good actors and I just you know and so what did you you know base your acting technique on since you never it sounds like formally enrolled you know a lot of people look for graduate programs yeah yeah no I never I never took any acting classes when you're young I think basically what you're doing is you're looking at 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 actors that you're working with and trying to figure out what they're doing okay you're also uh watching movies and watching television and uh I think most good actors they won't admit it, start off as mimics. They, they do what other people do. They try to do, oh, I like the way he did that, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going right. to do that. I think you do start out that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's the traditional way that journeymen learn from, you know, master actors for centuries and centuries. Um, the idea of going to school to learn how to act was an odd idea. Mm. You know what I mean? So I was in the last... The last generation that learned the old-fashioned way in many okay. ways. And I was fortunate because the Bay Area was a very rich theatrical environment to be in. And there were a lot of really good actors who were working all the time. So, well, you know, One thing I was, had a question about, you said when you were doing community theater, there was something that felt like home. You get the feeling that you belong there, that this is what you should be doing, that, that you have, yeah, you have to, yeah. Did it feel, did it feel like another family? Did it remind you of growing up, like with the big family, you know, and that kind of thing? Or was it, is, was it a I new kind of experience? I don't think that's so much. It's, it's, the theaters are wonderful because you, you meet new people all the time and within three or four days, you feel like. Your best friends. Your friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you don't see them again for 30 years. But at that time, and I think it's because you're working on a pro, you're all working on the same project. You all need one another for it to succeed. I know there's always rivalry and jealousies, but much less, I suspect, in theater than there is in business, as a matter of fact. And you're working on a thing that requires you to be physically and emotionally present all the time. It's very rare, that is true, that the demands made on your body and your psyche when you're doing a certain job are not high, but when you're doing theater... That's your raw material. That's what the job is, is to place your emotions, your psyche, your understanding, your sense of relationship as part of what you make the art out of. So it felt very familiar, very comfortable, Mm. very challenging, you know. But also the wonderful thing about it is it's not just a job that you do, 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 do. 
It is, it has a finished product. It has a, a date at which you, you succeed. You know what I mean? Right. And that's kind of like school. It wasn't that different from the educational environment, which I, in which I grew up, in which you, you work very hard and you have a, you have a finished thing. You have work for him. You have a thing. A lot of people work at jobs where they never have that sense of satisfaction. So, right. yeah. so there was the combination of hard work, satisfaction, live approval, <laughs> and camaraderie, which was pretty hard to beat. Sure. If you have to work for a living, that's not a bad place to work. Right. When you ended up on the East Coast, you, you know, you, you move, it was because, uh, your wife Anne got into a graduate program. Right. She got into Juilliard. She and was so, in the first group of Juilliard. So did you, were you kind of targeted in terms of wanting to work with John Houseman and no, teach you Juilliard? No, no, um, no. Again, I still had not made up my mind that I was ever going to be an actor and nothing else. I was still at the university. I uh, gave up my teaching job. And uh, went back to New York because Anne, we, we, uh, she, she did her first year. We got engaged. Then we got married after her first year. Then we both went back together, packed everything we owned into a van and drove across country. So if your marriage can survive that, you're okay. <laughs> Lived in a one-room apartment studio for three years. You can survive that. You can get in. And I applied to um, graduate school in Manhattan. And I went to NYU. And I went back to Hausman uh, earlier and I begged him for a job because of I had known him because he had visited one of the Shakespeare festivals that I was I was doing. So I had known him somewhat already. So I said, well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be going to NYU to do a doctorate. But I'm, I'm a university professor. If and, and, and you know, he knew that I was a professional actor. If there's anything here that you can, you know, that I can help out with teaching. So he gave me a little part-time job teaching and administering a little bit for three years. And I went to NYU every night. Hmm. Uh, after teaching and Anne uh, continued going through and she went every night across the street to a insurance company and filed for a little extra money. We were then summer times we'd come home and my university was great. They offered me a summer gig and I had a summer job in theater as well. So I was able to earn two salaries for three months and then take all that money back and get through the next nine months in New York. And I did that for three years, but but I was I was still planning to you know get my doctorate, which I never finished, and come back and resume. And then I was rehired back at the university and put back on the on the tenure track. And so, how did you get involved acting at Juilliard, or with the with the? Well, the what happened was in the third year, two things happened. Hausman looked at this first group of actors that he had, which included you know Patty Lapone, Kevin Klein, David Ogden Stiers. Mary Joan Negro, Mary Lou Rosado, Sam Chuchibus. And he thought, I, I've got the makings of a company here. And he loved to create theater companies. And the second thing that happened was that was when the bombing of Cambodia were happening and all the student protests were happening and, and uh, the universities and college campuses were all disturbed and people were leaving college thinking it was... Uh, and an actor in the first year in Group 1 was performing uh, Chibuchkin in the Cherry Orchard in one of their workshops. Black actor, young black actor, very good actor, Stephen McKinley Henderson. He does all the August Wilson plays. He okay. played opposite Denzel oh, okay. in the in Fences. Okay. I just worked with him, as a matter of fact. In the middle of all this stuff that was going on, the call, he felt very much like a fish out of water. He was a kid from St. Louis. He was suddenly in New York. He was one of two black kids in Group 1. And he said he quit in the middle of the rehearsal period. So John came to me and asked me, would you, as a favor, as a faculty member, 
we we don't want to cancel the production or the workshop. Would you take over the role of Chibuchkin for the workshop? And I said, yeah. I, I had played it before, uh, earlier in my mm-hmm. career. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. And um, John came to me at the end of uh, the third year and said, we're going to put together an acting company. But now that Stephen Henderson has quit, we're one character man short. We need one more character man in order to do all the great plays. So for your third year here, we'll cut back your teaching duties, keep your administrative duties, and you work with Group One as an actor. Wow. Then I thought, well, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I was the ringer. I was the faculty ringer Hmm. during their their fourth year, my third year there, their fourth year there. And I appeared basically as kind of a walk-on or a small part and everything. And then the fourth show they did was Hostage, and they gave me the lead. And there was a certain amount of unhappiness among the (laughs) acting students at the time. Uh, some of them. I mean, the way I, I was kind of in between faculty and student. Right. I mean, it was very weird, but I didn't know how weird it was. So I said, fine. And then when John said, well, we're going to form a professional company now, so the 16 students and me, basically. And so we did a season in Saratoga. We did the first season in Manhattan. By that time, Anne was pregnant. So we had talked to John and said, look, we'll do the first season in Manhattan. But Anne has to go back to California. And I will do the little tour to Philadelphia, but then I have to leave. Is that all right? Can we still do this? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So we did very little. We did the first season, but not the first touring season, basically. And then I came back. And, you know, you guys were doing a lot of classics and doing plays oh, and repertory yeah. Yeah, yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, and rep, yeah. And why are doing the classics and working in repertory so helpful or so important for actors? Well... First of all, need to be done because they're classics, because they're, they're better than almost anything else. And they teach us more about ourselves in some way than contemporary plays do, because they show us that the same things that we were worried, were worried about now, they were worried about then in different circumstances. So we get a more sense of universality of human experience. But the demands they make upon the actor and the directors and the designers are completely different because they have a different style. So if you try to play them without playing the style, they seem bad. If you don't have the equipment to play them with style, you don't get the message. So an actor is challenged to bring their instrument to the highest level of availability, to bring their voice, their movement, their psyche, their understanding, their emotional life, so that if you're doing a great play that makes that deals with great issues and great emotions, you can fill that greatness, you know, with your instrument. You can play the instrument. It's like saying having a really good musical instrument. You can't play the really tough stuff unless your instrument is in great shape. You can't play the great stuff unless you've got a Stradivarius or a Guarneri. You know, you just have to have the good instrument. So that's what uh, that's what classical training is: is to prepare the instrument to work with the hardest work, the hardest work possible. Ensemble and repertory has the additional advantage that everybody, an advantage for the actors of widening their range of interpretation, that they have to do four or five different characters over the space of one month. Sometimes characters that are wildly different from one another, that also expands their range, improves their instrument. But it also guarantees, if you're lucky, that every member of the company can play a lead Precisely because in the next play, they'll play a middle role, and the next play, they'll play a walk-on. So that 
everybody has something to do, but you don't have four stars and then this company of pickup people. Every show can be cast deeply because you got somebody who's playing King Lear on Friday night who's playing a servant on Thursday. But that servant will be a great servant, you know what I mean? Because he's capable of playing Lear. Right. In other words, you, you can make even the small or the cameo roles memorable because you've got, you've got people with star quality in them. That's sure. the idea of, of, of repertory and of ensemble. Guarantees the productions will be better. Guarantees each actor will, will, will widen his range. And then, on top of that, the audience actually does enjoy seeing the same actor play a widely different role. Unlike in cinema, where we want pretty much to keep saying the same actor playing the same role over and again. Sure. In theater, we actually enjoy, I think audience actually enjoy seeing actors play widely different roles. And then, if any part of your theater is a tourist attraction... In other words, if it's not your home audience that you appeal to, but also to tourist audiences, repertory makes it possible for tourists to come in and see three shows in three days rather than the same show three times in three days. So it's kind of, you know, repertory and ensembles win-win for so many, in so many ways. Also, you pay one person to do six shows. <laughs> you don't pay six people. And therefore, overlap, a rehearsal, and a performance pay, you end up paying much more. I always thought repertory was much less expensive, but nobody does it anymore. So. Why do you suppose that is? Because directors don't like to be told who they have to cast. Mm. Because every director comes in and thinks there's a perfect person for this part, and, and, uh, and only I know who that is. And if I'm not given the power to make that choice... Because most directors know, as most actors know, 90% of great directing is casting. So it, it, is, it, is, it has become a director's theater to some extent. And if a director cannot control the casting, then they feel like they don't have the power to, to, uh, to direct the show in many ways. I, that, I mean, that's a simplification. Sure. It, but well, and also, also, no longer do theaters do an all-classical repertoire right. in which that ensemble is a power. Nowadays, modern plays are written that require specific types sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if you're going to try to cast with diversity. It's very hard to keep uh, a repertory company going and keep actresses happy. Right. You know? And you certainly can't be can't cast as diversely as you would like if you're doing classical plays, unless you first educate your audiences and your directors on how to how and when diversity of casting can fit well with the project that you're doing. So there's a lot of bad reasons why repertory is gone, but there are a lot of understandable reasons why repertory is harder to maintain. And I know you've worked with a number of different directors, you know, repeatedly, you know, Mm -hmm. like Jack O'Brien. And so what do you either hope for or look for uh, in a director as, as an actor? Well, for me, that's kind of easy because I have a horrible visual sense of theater. I just, I, I don't know why. I mean, I got a great temporal sense. My timing is good, and I understand acting. But in terms of spectacle, I'm not really very good at spectacle. So one thing I like working with a great director is that they can, I don't tend to visualize as well as I audibilize. <laughs> okay. So I want a director who can visualize, who can make the ideas that the, that, that, that the text contains Visually exciting, which is something that I'm hopeless at. The other thing that I look for in a director is an absolute respect for the text and an understanding of the text. And that's, I won't say it's rare, but it's, it's getting rarer 
you know, directors, again, want to impose their ideas on a text which sometimes can't support it. So I like the directors who draw their essential interpretive ideas from the text rather than impose it on. And the third thing I like is I like problem solvers. I like I like directors who see what you're doing, see what the problem is, and know how to solve the problem, rather than put a sort of facade over the top of it or pretend it's not there or not. So, uh, and I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of really wonderful directors who do, who can do that. You've also done a lot of different jobs in the theater, uh, you know, dramaturg and actor and director. And do you think you're a better actor or teacher or scholar, specifically of Shakespeare? But I know I think your, act, your studies. Uh, have I gone. think actor is probably my primary skill. Okay, but because of that, I think if I am a, if I am a good teacher or a good director. It's because, or scholar even, especially scholar. I mean, you know, you can see I read everything ever written practically. But my insights into a Shakespearean text almost always come from my acting. Really? Yeah. I mean, my, my important insights. Other people, <laughs> other people have read a lot more about Renaissance literature, Renaissance philosophy, or theology, or, or, or culture than I have. And I have to read those to sort of keep up with that. But not many Shakespeare scholars have acted in as many Shakespeare plays as I have professionally. Sure. So if I bring if I bring anything to the table which other people can't bring, it's that understanding how a play works from the inside out. And do you keep up with all of the kind of scholarly work because you just is it just for fun? I mean, is that how you're kind of wired? Yeah. Yeah. Also, if you're going to make statements about Shakespeare, inevitably, they can't all be about how to act Shakespeare. Inevitably, they have to be about, you know, the phenomenon, which is Shakespeare. And you don't want to say anything that simply is stupid or not true. You know, so even though I bring unique understandings of the plays to the table, no one will respect those understandings if I don't demonstrate that I have expertise beyond just the acting expertise. So I think that's part of it. And part of it, I just find it fascinating. I can't, you know. You can't stop. I can't stop. It's, <laughs> it's you know. Do, do you have a favorite kind of job among, you know, you said you have probably acting as your primary skill, but do you have a favorite profession within all of the acting theater work you do? Well, now, I, the last, I haven't done Shakespeare in four or five years as an actor. The opportunities to do it are simply not there as much. But I have been doing a lot of more masterclass teaching, and I think that's where I'm deriving most of my Shakespeare joy from now, masterclass And then in those times when I'm hired as a dramaturg with a director who knows what a dramaturg does. Sometimes I'm hired as a dramaturg with a director who doesn't know what a dramaturg is, or a director who doesn't care what a dramaturg does. I mean, they just wanted someone to be to have their name on that, and they're not really listening to them. But when I work hand in glove with a with like as I did with Jack Sand, Much Ado, about five or six years ago, that was great because you really felt you were contributing to the success of the project. I love that. Right, I mean, I'd rather be acting than anything. But right now, teaching uh, young students and mid-career professional, any professional, how I think uh, Shakespeare texts and acting works is what I'm enjoying most. Now, this is something I've been actively kind of. Looking for just as a curiosity, have you ever found a great Shakespeare class online? Have you ever come across no, anything like that? No, 
No, I haven't either. No. And I, and I'm curious if, if you have an idea as to, I mean, there's so many classes online, there's so much available. And I'm just wondering why is there not a great acting Shakespeare class online? Part of the reason is nobody knows how to do it particularly. How can I put this? There's a lot of bogus Shakespeare teaching out there. If they put it online and exposed it to the real world, <laughs> it would show, it would make, wouldn't make sense. But more than that, more difficult than that is to really effectively do it well online, you'd need a group of actors to work with, and that makes it prohibitively expensive. Mm. I once went to SAG to see what the possibility was of putting together a DVD series. And in fact, my, my son, who's a, a film editor as well as a, a filmmaker, had put together one quick 45-minute demonstration of what it might be like. And I said, here's what I do. I generally teach a class of about 20 people. In any given session, two or three of them will get up and perform. But I will also talk to the audience and ask them to talk back or make observations. So, uh, and, I, and I work only with professional actors. What would that entail? And they said, you'd have to give a contract to every person in the room. Well, that was gone. That idea was completely gone, right. you know. And I don't want to do one where I simply talk right. to whoever's watching the DVD. You have to demonstrate. You sure. have to work. The best thing the best thing that I think that I do as a master class is working with two people while 12 people watch. Because the, the 12 people watching are going to learn more than, oh, the, of course, yeah. the, than the two frightened <laughs> people that I'm working with who can't hear a word I'm saying because they're so nervous. You know, so yes, there should be. I mean, I would be happy to do a question and answer thing or a lecture demonstration stuff, but to have a really good online class, it's just, you know, it's like having a good online gym class. <laughs> right. How does that work? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's something interesting to consider and think about, uh, you know, because I, you know, I look at just the kind of by process of osmosis of stuff I picked up at Antias and just going, I, I can only imagine other actors would would be so hungry for this kind of uh, education or, yeah, or, yeah. or exposure to this, yeah. like, oh, this is how you, you know, because I'm one of those actors that, you know, of the thousands that didn't get into NYU or Juilliard or Carnegie Mellon and yet are still very hungry for that kind of training. Yeah. And so there's, the, to me, I see it as like a real gap. That well, it is. And the other problem is that you don't want to have great professional actors demonstrating. Sure. Right. Because it doesn't help. Exactly. What you they need <laughs> is they need young actors or mid-career actors who do it wrong so that you can show them how to do it right. Right. If you get Ian McKellen demonstrating something, you kind of go, well, that's Ian McKellen. Or then right. Judy Dench. What did I learn from that? You right. Know? Or, or, or the, the, the kind of the, the wrong perception is like, oh, it's so easy. Yeah. You just see them yeah. do it. And it's like, no, no, there's... There's a lot behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, I think being able to unpack that would be, would be great. Well, some, uh, but person-to-person, person, I mean, yeah. live person-to-person, person, yeah. so, so that you can see the reaction the person's having. Right. You can see when, they, when they're nodding, but they don't really understand what you're saying. You can't do that across a video. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, speaking, actually, you know, doing stuff on screen, I, I do want to ask, at what point did you transition into TV work and... You know, get into that part of your career. Well, I was uh, I was still teaching at Cal State East Bay. These are the glory days of university, and they were trying to turn over faculty to bring new faculty in. Mm -hmm. So they had an, an early retirement program. You could retire as early as fifty. Wow! And I've been teaching there since I was twenty-five. Wow! I took three years off to go to New York and came back. And uh, towards the end of my teaching career there, I was taking 
one quarter sabbaticals if I had jobs that were out of town, you know, and had to go off and do them like that. And these are but, these are theater jobs. Yeah, these okay, are theater yeah. jobs. Yeah, and I was about to turn fifty. I now was the age that I looked like I was because I looked like I was fifty when I was thirty, and there was no point in going down to Hollywood as a thirty-year-old and competing for fifty-year-old jobs. And I had come down to L.A. six years earlier to do the L.A. Olympic Arts Festival in 84. Mm -hmm. And I did a long run of uh, Sherlock's Last Case, the Olympic Arts Festival, Charles Marowitz's play. And while I was doing that, I got a TV job. Just to one, you know, guest star in Remington Steel, I guess it was. Did you did you have an agent at that point? Or? Uh, I did have an agent. Okay. When I, I, I wrote... I wrote to six or seven agents when I, when I when I knew I was coming down to L.A. to do this uh, Olympic Arts Festival, and one wrote back, only one, and uh, said, of course, I'll take you on. And uh, I've been with that agency ever since. Oh, really? Yeah, Henderson wow. Hogan. It was Maggie Henderson. Only one that answered me. And um, I kept an apartment in, in West in Hollywood, which is no longer there. And I think there's a hardware store there now. Sunset and Western, I mean, some of the worst areas possible. But I had a little apartment there that I'd gotten to do this run, and I kept it. And for the last five years that I was teaching, I would go back and forth. I would, especially in the summertime, or if I took, if I took a quarter off, I would, I would, I would lease the apartment out to other people if it wasn't going to be there for a long time. But mm -hmm. I always had a pied a terre in Hollywood from 1984 to 19, uh, 88 or 89, I think. Because I began to get work in L.A. while I was working in Hayward. And I tried to keep them both going. So I would drive. I put a lot of miles on the car. I put a lot of miles on the car. And I would come down when I had something and then go back up. And then I, uh, we bought a condo, I guess, in 88 in North Hollywood. And then we bought the house in 1990. So I had kind of, I was kind of split between L.A. and Hayward for the last four years. Then I took my retirement and moved down here. Family moved down permanently in 1990. So when I was 50, I, I moved to L.A. But I had been doing a little bit of work in L.A. over those five years. And so was it always the teaching that gave you the kind of financial comfort uh, to be able to pursue this? And that it, was it never, I mean, even though you knew you wanted to do it, it was never a, this better make me money. No, no. no. In fact, Teaching the two jobs allowed me to raise a family and, you know, because there was not enough money in theater at that particular time, you know. You don't, we were making a lot of money. I'm sure. Think. But if you combine the two salaries. Now, when I started doing TV, it, it, it was a little different, you know. Right. Or ACT was, I think I made 700 a week, maybe at ACT, 750 a week, you know. That would seem like a lot of money at the time. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you, you know, you, you start to do, you know, guest stars and things like that, and then you start doing films... Well, we talked a little bit about the nervousness a little bit earlier, but were you nervous doing the TV and, and film stuff? Like, just how did you develop well, your technique Well, I was fortunate there? that I did a number of guest spots before I actually permanently moved down here. And there were a few things that I did that I felt I wasn't very good at, you know. I was still giving theatrical performances on film. But no, not particularly. I mean, you know, the, 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 the worst thing that would happen is you'd go into an audition and you'd say, to yourself, oh, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll do this role just like so-and-so. And you go and you sit down, and so and so is sitting next to you, <laughs> competing with the guy. I'm going to mimic. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to mimic. So that was that was uh, sometimes a little off putting, you know. I want to jump ahead a little bit to some of the uh, specific projects you've done. When you did History Boys, mm -hmm. 
I remember thinking, and I think I actually even wrote to you when I knew they were doing the play in LA, I was just like, well, Dakin has to play Hector. Like I, it just, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine anyone else playing the part. And I think there are at least maybe the perception of who Dakin Matthews is seems to be somewhat in line with some of the qualities of that character. You know, someone who's very, you know, well-educated and maybe a bit eccentric and all this kind of stuff. Did you pursue that part or did you know you like, did you feel that kind uh, of connection? I think my, I think my, Oh, I did. Yeah. I mean, I knew what, I knew what it was. Yeah. I think they put out a breakdown and my agent submitted me for it and I went in and auditioned for it. Okay. So it was just a straight audition process. I didn't uh, actually didn't think I was going to get it because I, it was at the Amundsen and the idea of of having no stars in a show. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, the Amundsen and the production was one of the greatest experiences in my life, but it was not successful. The show was not successful Mm. because it was in the Amundsen, that great, huge barn, you know, the kids were all great. I'm still friends with all of them. And we meet up together every once in a while. I mean, was it a dynamite cast of kids and they were, and they really sold the show on the basis of them as they should have, because they were great. I had a good time doing it, but uh, the audiences didn't, Critics didn't particularly like it. And, and you, you, think, know, you think a lot of that, if it had been in the Mark Taper Forum, totally would have been better in the Mark Taper yeah. Forum, but also because no one in the company except one person was actually British, <laughs> the critics all decided that we weren't very good hmm. and that the boys' accents were not good. And I was, I was no Richard, whatever his name was. Right. You know, the fact the boys' accents were probably better than some of the British actors who did it. I mean, they had, they were rigorously trained and they were very good. And the director, who had also directed the touring company in Great Britain, said we were better than the, than the British touring company, basically. So how, I mean, this is something I, I wasn't aware of. How did you handle that kind of stuff personally? You know, because that's, you know, no actor wants to hear that kind of stuff or, or feel like it. I mean, it did. I'm not saying it changed your. Uh, I was disappointed. I, I was disappointed because I thought we had a, a wonderful, wonderful show. And an interesting thing about Center Theater Group, where I've done, I think, 12 or 13 shows, kind of the Taper, the Amundsen, the Douglas. Is it up to that point? I was probably the actor who had worked there more than anybody, but I had never been offered a lead. Hmm. I played two leads. In one, I replaced an actor with three days before first performance. In the other, I replaced an actor with four days before first performance. In other words, the person they hired didn't work out, and I was hired to come in and do it in three days, basically. Otherwise, I was always had given mostly cameo little roles Mm -hmm. throughout the show. I felt here was my first, first lead from CTG. I thought now, now I'll, I'll, I'll establish this sort of thing. And I, I know, um, they felt by not hiring a Brit, they were taking a big chance on me. And I felt that I didn't, you know, deliver, re- re- deliver there. I mean, I felt personally perfectly happy sure. with what I did, but it was not what the audiences or the critics wanted to see. So I felt a little, de- I was a little depressed that I did, that I didn't live up to their expectations. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question of could any American or non-British actor, you know, have done that, uh, you, you know, met those kind of, there were just these projects where people have such high well, expectations. Well, not in a, not in a metropolitan area. Okay. 
In other words, History Boys was done a lot of places, you know. Sure. But as long as they don't expect it to be a star, right. it's fine. But in L.A., at the Helmetson, they expect it to be a star, basically. And, and if it's not, you know, who is this guy? Yeah. Hmm. I think. I mean, I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Maybe it just wasn't... Um, I thought it was really well-directed. We had all the original sets and props from the New York production. Impeccably designed. Part of it is that house. That house is just too big for a show, which is really intimate. Mm, that, that's sure. an intimate, intimate show. Yeah, I actually saw the original production in New York, and I remember, I think I was even you know up in what you would call the rafters, yeah, yeah. and you still felt like you were almost like, on yeah, top of the yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a yeah, very, very intimate space. So you've also played a number of real people, uh, mm-hmm. mostly on stage, like C.S. Lewis and Hitchcock yeah. and um, Churchill and, and even Dick Cheney. And what's the process like when you're doing something like that? Is it different? I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, how do you approach these real people? Well, and again, there's kind of these yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm fortunate enough that in all cases, I I, I bore some resemblance to these people, so I didn't have to <laughs> go through the prosthetics, you know, right. and stuff like that. But people say, well, it's not really an imitation of that person. I always felt obliged to try to be as close to what that person spoke and moved like sure. as possible. So I wish I had had an opportunity to do. With the Churchill, more uh, just a little bit of prosthetics, but they they didn't seem interested in it. I mean, I would have liked to do a little bit more facially, but it was too small a role for them to worry about. It was you know eleven minute role, so it's not a big deal. But no, I was. Uh, I think you approach it. You you watch video of them. You listen to them. But you have to work from the text. You can't bring in anything that isn't you know in the play itself. But you try to capture their their essence. And it comes a moment comes when you're in rehearsal when. When it clicks, you kind of go, "Oh, yes, that—that's what that—not that's what that person looks like. But that's what that person feels like at that moment." Sure. And then that, you're very fortunate if that happens. Well, it, yeah, it's a very famous example is when Frank Langella did Nixon. Yeah. You know, like I, most people wouldn't pick him. They'd be like, "Oh, he looks like Nixon." Yeah, yeah. But it was more about his mannerisms and his probably yeah. the emotional life. Yeah, they caught. Yeah, he caught the psyche. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in all in all these characters, whether it's the the real people you were playing. Have there been any roles in your career that really challenged you that, that you're just like, I, you know, it, it, fit, it felt elusive that you just couldn't, couldn't crack it? I don't know if it was a real character, a real person or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my great failure is everybody's great failure, I think. Gloms and Carter. Oh, that's yeah. a tough, tough. Never got that. All right. I'm so not, for those who didn't get the, the reference, so we're talking about the Scottish play. <laughs> the Scottish play. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. What do you felt like you got but didn't? also get in that well i got act four and five i thought uh i even did a fairly decent broadsword fight got my lip cut open and had plastic surgery right after the performance but the first three acts i don't think i ever got for some reason and and it's very difficult i keep justifying it because i think the play is so much about the interior life of macbeth and every director wants to make it about the exterior Mm-hmm. life of his relationship to other people whereas it's it's a really an internal drama in his head to a certain extent mm-hmm. and that's very hard to stage i mean it's very hard to stage or to trust or to respect so there's a lot of stuff generally added over the top of it which is i thought i've done brutus a number of times brutus is also a very elusive character for exactly the same reasons do you think shakespeare wrote a difficult to stage play with macbeth 
or have you seen productions that you're like, they I've get never it. seen a successful one. Okay. I hear the Mikel and Judy Dench sitting in a circle with candles was, and I believe that because that makes it intimate and, and, you know, quiet, small, dark, scary is better than big horror show scary for me. Those are the two. They didn't get away quite. I was, Brutus is tough for some of the same reasons. I always thought I got the act four or five Brutus as well. But the first three acts are tough. So what about the characters that you've played, whether film or TV or, or probably more theater, that you feel like, I got this. It just it just felt like it dropped in. And it, you know, there's that kind of <clears throat> magic that a lot of actors hope to feel on every play. Yeah, yeah. Usually, oddly enough, their characters very much unlike me are the ones when it happens. Because you go so far outside yourself that it's kind of interesting. So Any know, any spring to mind? or Falstaff is not at all like oh, okay. me, you know. Bottom is not at all like me, but those are two of my favorite roles and, and, and most successful. Is roles. it the kind of outlandishness? Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 I'm a very sort of private, I don't know what you say. No, I'm not Intr- introverted. I'm not, I'm not an extrovert. Okay. Which is, which is interesting because you have such a effusive personality on stage. You can really open, you really have an ability to yeah. open up, I think. Uh, or, or seem kind of larger than you are. Which is what I don't have in real life. <laughs> I just look large in real life. So I am curious, how did Rocky come about? You, you know, you were talking, you said earlier that now you're doing music theater. I mean, that seems like something totally out of left. Yeah, field. no kidding. Um, let me see if I can think of how that happened. I, I was doing a film, I think, and, uh, my agent called and said, um, somebody is uh, doing a musical of Rocky. And they wondered if you'd be interested in doing the lab, the workshop of it. I said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Which is apparently what everybody who was contacted to do this said. Except Alex Timbers, the director, who thought it was the greatest idea I've ever heard of. And it fit perfectly into a sort of in-between two projects that I was working on. And they said, it's not a singing role, just to play the trainer, you know. I said, oh. Why not? I've never done that before. Yeah, that's fine. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a call saying, but do you sing? They wonder, do you sing? And I said, well, I sang choir for 10 years, but I, you know, no, they might write a song for you, you know. And they said, yeah, fine, let's do it, you know. And I, I don't know who knew me in this group. I think, as I get many of my jobs, I think someone else was offered, and I think he dropped out of it. And I don't know how they knew me at this point. I, I hadn't done that that much in New York. I don't. Mm-hmm. I always am amazed when people call me and tell me, "Oh, we we love you, and you want you to," you know. Well, I mean, you had done a number of supporting parts in notable productions, uh, kind of leading up to this. Whether it was A Man for All Seasons or or the yeah. Four, and I mean, so yeah, but they were not remarkable in their, you know, they weren't like great roles. So I said, yeah, I showed up and it was the best time ever. I mean, I had a really, really good time. They wrote a song for me and I met Flaherty and Aarons, which was one of the thrills of my life. It was a great thrill of my life. The same sort of thing happened when I got a call to do uh, Where's Charlie uh, for the encores. You know, again, I had, why would they, you know, they, I guess somebody, I, got, I figured it was Jack Vertil who I knew from the taper, and he was now sort of the artistic director of the encores, and he knew that I did British accents, mm-hmm. I guess. So these calls to come and do musical comedies, and I just did one. I just finished uh, Brigadoon, did an encore of Brigadoon. No singing, no dancing, okay. just playing the, the talking, the Mr. Lundy. And 
I just love it when it because I mean, I've suddenly become this musical comedy actor. So right, and you're involved in a whole another world, and and, and and the only world that really pays. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Broadway pays very, very right, well. Right. It was hard to leave Waitress because I was making such good money, but two years is a long time for someone who's never done a run longer than you know four or five months. So, Dick, one of the jokes I have. And this is a kind joke, but one of the jokes I have about your career is when you read your bio, you get winded because it's just, it's almost unbelievable how many things you've been involved in. You've been artistic director of three different companies. You've taught at Juilliard. You taught at ACT. You know, you're in the acting company and there's kind of this quality of like, just maybe one of those would be enough for like anyone. (laughs) And yet you have all of them. And I, and I just wonder, like, do you have any idea of how you had time for all of this? Not to mention all the seminary work you did. You know, you didn't even get started until you were like 30. Like, how do you have time? How did you have time for all of this? Well, I'm a workaholic, first of all, like my father. My father worked as a foundryman. He worked till he was 85, I think. Wow. You know, I couldn't stop him. The other is that I make use of my time. I piggyback my work on other work. If I'm doing a play, I bring my computer to the dressing room. And if I'm doing a play like uh, Audience, which is was a great experience, but I'm on stage for 15 minutes. I'm in the theater for three hours. Instead of knitting, you'll, you'll work I, on something. Instead of doing crossword puzzles <laughs> and knitting, I write a play, you know. I always bring a book to set. I don't do small talk. That's why what I mean by being an introvert. I actually, on set, I'm the most boring person you'd ever want to meet. Because as soon as they... They say, okay, uh, set it for the next scene. I go back to my chair, pull my book out, and read again, you know. There's a lot of downtime in all the professions that I'm in. When you're rehearsing a play, you're not rehearsing every scene in the play. I always have something that I'm doing. I don't waste time, basically. When I finally decide that I'm not going to be working, I crash completely. I I turn into an absolute couch potato and watch television 13 hours a day. And I could do that for about two weeks, you know, and then I get crazy. Well, yeah, so I, I was going to ask, you know, on, on maybe days when you're not working, because you said, you know, how you fill your time if you're on set or, or rehearsing. Right now I'm writing a play as I'm talking to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, do you, are you conscious about how you structure your days, you know, if, you're, if you don't have work going on? I or? really like structured days. The more I'm working, the more I'm working on top of working. Okay. If I don't have a day structure, it's very difficult for me to get anything done. Because then I'll sleep in, I'll get up, I'll turn on MSNBC. You'll get pulled into that world. And I'll just yeah. get, then I'll just watch. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as I have a structured day, right. then I have a matrix in which I can fit the other work that I want to do. It's very odd. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, b- besides being a workaholic, I... Uh, also, I, I read very quickly, so I'm able to read a lot. You know, I don't speed read, but I'm right. able to, to read a lot more stuff. And when I work on plays, I work very quickly. Okay. So it's not like I have to go home. In other words, the third time through the scene, I've, I know the lines. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to spend a lot of time memorizing lines. I don't know. Maybe now I do. It's been a, as I say, now that I'm 77... Broadway is not a bad place to be because eventually everybody's going to need a 70-year-old actor. And the pool of 70-year-old actors who can still remember their lines 
shrinks. <laughs> if I can still remember my lines, I can probably work pretty steady in theater. Yeah. You know? Not so much in film and mm-hmm. TV, because mm-hmm. that kind of dried up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much TV and film was written for younger people, sure, younger actors sure. and stuff like that. But still, on the stage, if there's a grandpa role, I can still remember my lines, you know? So they yeah. have to get some 50-year-old and put him in heavy makeup. I right, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well... Can we take a look at Romeo and Juliet? Uh, do you have yeah, I just that? yeah. This is something that I discovered the last master class I gave. A girl wanted to do the vile speech okay. from Romeo and Juliet, which and I had and that's the other great thrill for me when I do master classes and somebody picks a speech that I have never done. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to learn a lot more about it than they ever do. Sure. So she wanted to do the vile speech, which along with you know. Um, Come Romeo, come, you know, uh, gallop apace, are the two really wonder two of the really wonderful pieces for for Juliet. Almost almost impossible pieces for Juliet in many ways. So she did it, and I was um, I was watching her, and she was doing pretty well. And then she got to the end of the speech, and it made oddly no sense what her choice at that point. It didn't make any sense, and I couldn't figure out what exactly it was. And the thing that uh, I focus on a lot with young actors now when they work on scenes like that is not just to understand each line of the speech, not just to understand each word of the speech, but to understand the overall structure of the speech. This is Act Act 4, Scene 3. She, she sends the nurse away, then she tries to call the nurse back. It's just, no, I don't want her. She has nothing to do with me. This is where I have to do my dismal scene. I needs must act alone. And she says, come vile. So she takes out the little poison. Then she says, what if this mixture do not work at all? Shall I be married then tomorrow morning? No, no. This, and she holds up a dagger, shall forbid it. Then she puts the dagger next to her bed or under her pillow, wherever it is. Lie thou there. Then she says, what if it be a poison which the friar subtly hath ministered to have me dead, lest in this marriage he should be dishonored because he married me before to Romeo? I fear it is, and yet methinks it should not, for he hath still been tried a holy man. Then she says, How if, when I'm laid into the tomb, I wake before the time that Romeo come to redeem me? There's a fearful point. Shall I not then be stifled in the vault, to whose foul mouth no healthsome air breathes in, and there die strangled ere my Romeo comes? Or, if I live, is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night, together with the terror of the place, as in a vault, an ancient receptacle, where for this many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed, where bloody Tybalt, yet but green in earth, lies festering in his shroud, where, as they say, at some hours in the night spirits resort, alack, alack, is it not like that I, so early waking, what with loathsome smells and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth, that living mortals hearing them run mad? Or, if I wake, shall I not be distraught, environed with all these hideous fears, and madly play with my forefather's joints, and pluck the mangled Tybalt from his shroud, and in this rage with some great kinsman's bone, as with a club dash out my desperate brains? Oh, look! Methinks I see my cousin's ghost seeking out Romeo that did spit his body upon a rapier's point. Stay, Tybalt, stay. Romeo, Romeo, Romeo. Here's drink, I drink to thee. Okay. Tough little speech. But 
If you don't understand the shape, you miss the essential dynamic of the speech. What this girl did was she got to the end and then she went, Romeo, 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 here's drink I drink to thee. She thought that quietness was the important thing to do at the end of the speech. And of course, what Shakespeare has written here is what's called a passion, an emotional speech by a single character that is meant to exhibit a, a passionate response to something. But more importantly, he's written a speech about a, girl, a little girl who's 14 years old, who's facing a dilemma. So she says, okay, here's the bot. And she first says, what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work? Am I going to have to marry again the second time tomorrow? No, no. Ah, oh, there's a knife. I brought the knife. I can solve that problem. So she goes, question one. If it doesn't work, what are my options? Do I have a solution? Yes, I got a knife. Good. Done. Wait a minute. There's another option. What if it works too well? What if it kills me? I think it might be. What's his motive? He's afraid he'll be caught out for marrying me first. So he'll kill me so he won't be caught out for that. Do I have a solution? Do I have an answer for that? No, I don't think that's possible. He's, 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 he's a good guy. He wouldn't do that. So the first one, she has a very definitive answer. She knows what she's going to do. The second one, she says, what if it doesn't work? Then just, what if it works too well? Do I have a solution for that? Not really, but I hope he wouldn't do that. No, he, he wouldn't do that. Third question now comes up. Okay. So the question is not whether it won't work or whether it will work. What if it doesn't quite work the way it's supposed to work and I wake up early? Oh, my God. I'd be in a tomb where there hasn't been any fresh air for years. And I would suffocate to death. That would be horrible. Does she have a solution for that? Does she have an answer for that question? No. So what's happening? First one, it might be this. Well, I can solve that. Second one, it could be this. I don't, I don't think that would be it. Third one, what about this? And she has no answer for that. So clearly, she starts off with a kind of rational start and a rational answer. A second start, not a very good answer. Third one, no answer at all. Instead of having an answer for that, she says, wake up too early and then I would, I would choke to death. Or if I don't choke to death, if I wake up early and I don't choke to death. So, Logically, she's actually pursuing these questions logically, but she's losing her ability to to deal with them. Or if I live. So I'm waking up early. I'm living. I'm not choking to death. But, oh, my God, I'm in this thing with all these bones and ghosts and just recently dead people and decaying people. And I'm going to look around and it's going to be smelly and it's going to be ugly. It's going to be filthy. People would go crazy. Oh, God, if I wake, oh, God, I'm going to go crazy myself. And I'm going to start beating myself over the head with a bone until I bash my brains out. That's her fourth one. Then she goes somewhere she's never gone before. She goes, look, look. It's tippled. It's tippled. So now she's not even on the if happens. She's now put herself completely into that situation where she is now hallucinating. She is saying, I am now in the tomb and I'm looking around and I got this bone in my hand and I'm beating my brains out and I see Tibble coming and oh my God, he's got his sword and he's going to kill, he's going to kill Romeo and Romeo's going to show up any minute. 
So I better get there quick. Boom. A completely insane reason to drink to drink the vial, which is she doesn't drink it because she'll be reunited with Romeo in some loving. She drinks it because she thinks she sees Tybalt coming after Romeo with a sword, and she's got to get there to get between them. Wow, Romeo. So it's it's it starts off with a sort of a logical idea, and ends up she revs, revs herself up, yeah. up into this hallucination. And it's probably the only way she could actually manage to drink the thing. All the other things that she said militate against her drinking it. Because it, it might not work. It might work too well. It would wear off too early. I wouldn't die. Everything she's going up to there, she didn't have a solution for. And then suddenly, the only thing that gets you to drink it is the, is the, is the imagination, the fantasy now that she is, she sees Tybalt stalking Romeo. And she, she, she wants to get there to keep Tibble, dead Tibble from killing newly arriving Romeo. So it just builds to this crescendo of uh, uh, each passion or each fear being greater than the previous one. So if you go soft at the end, you miss the entire structure. All that buildup to the climax at the end is lost by softening the last, the last thing. And also, each of the five things that she goes to, it might not work. It would work too well. It would work partially, but I'd wake up and then die of suffocation. Or I would wake up and I wouldn't die, but I'd break my brains out. Or Tybalt would come alive and he'd go try to kill Romeo. Up to the point of that last Tybalt thing, each one of them gets bigger. Each one gets longer. The first first problem... Done within four lines. Second problem, six lines. Third problem, eight lines or so, you know. Fifth problem just goes on and on and on and on. And it, it, it's this expanding sort of shape. If you said, what's the shape of this speech? It's these, it's these lines that start, to, they just fan out and they never meet. It just becomes so. Yeah, yeah. it becomes so massive that it tips beyond control. And it's, it's, it's a speech in which he starts in control. And loses control. So, to pull it back down to a small, a quiet point is, is antagonistic to the dynamic of the speech. Do you see as a pattern actors shying away from that kind of emotional? From climaxes? Yes. There are two problems that most American actors make. They're kind of the same problem. A great passion, a great speech is like an aria. It has a musical structure. And it is normally clearly marked where the emotional climaxes are in a speech. If you know how to read the rhetoric and you're the people. Men don't tend to be sensitive to the structure of the speech. And they begin, they first of all try to play almost all passionate speeches angry. And they don't attach the anger to the exact point where anger or passion is called for in the speech. They will just randomly choose a place where they'll get angry. There is no randomness in a Shakespeare soliloquy. Everything is structured. And if you attach your emotion, your passion, your anger to a place that is not supported by the speech itself, the audience is confused. They don't, they don't see you know, suit the word to the action, the action the word means not just only gesture when it calls for it. It means when you are acting, 
It is the text that has to tell you what the emotional dynamic is. So uh, I think most male actors think I'm I'm just going to get really loud now. Now I'm going to get really soft. Now I'm going to get really loud again. Now I'm going to get really soft. They think just variation of, of, of volume or intensity is somehow what the speech calls for, irrespective of what the structure of the speech actually is. So that's one common mistake that, that many actors make. For women, it's slightly different. I think, in my experience, women have a much better sense of structures of speeches, but climaxes frighten them because the climax almost always insists that you use full volume, that you indicate that you reach the peak of your uh, uh, emotional intensity at the same moment that you reach the peak of your vocal intensity. And too many women, either because of insecurity or because they're untrained, feel that if they go that last step, they will sound ugly and shrill. Mm. So I've seen so many women build perfectly to a climax and soften away. Or it may also be the inherent misogyny in a patriarchal culture that, that refuses to let women have the full expression. To lose control to some their, degree, right? Of their yeah. emotion, that men will be put off by that. So the solution to that is a fearlessness, but also a trained voice so that no matter how vocally intense you become at a certain point, the voice is not ugly. Right. Or off-putting. You know what I mean? So that's that's the hard part. It, 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 there's a lot of them where it's true like that. I mean, Paulina, of course, has a couple where she should get ugly. Uh, Hermione sure. has some, certainly. Um, Gallop Pace has some in that regard. A lot of them have that where you simply have to have the vocal skill mm-hmm. to sing, to hit the high notes without losing the technical beauty and strength of the, of the thing. And that is, um, that results from a clear understanding of how this, what's not only what the speech is about, but the particular structure of the speech, especially if it's a speech where it steps up, as this one does. This one clearly goes boom, 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 and you can't go boom. Sure. Everything you built up is lost if you don't go ahead and push yourself to that climax. Uh, Lady Percy's speech in that part two is climaxes the line that goes, him, oh, him, oh, wondrous him, you know, him, oh, him, oh, wondrous him. If you if you back away from that, it's just crazy because actually, I think it's Shakespeare's pun, it's a hymn to her husband. H-Y-M-N. H-Y-M-N. Yeah. And that's just like just like Juliet's gallop of pace is a little is a little sexual self-excitement on come, 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 Romeo, come. I mean, it's Shakespeare deliberately builds that kind of a climactic structure into so many of the great speeches, and you just have to honor it. You have yeah. to stay with it. No, that was that was great, and it was probably a lot of fun for you to to visually see that as you're working through it with the with yeah, because it's something I had not noticed before. One always thinks that she takes the poison at that moment so that she can fulfill the friar's directive. Plan. Yeah, yeah, which to some sense she does, but the emotional reason why she takes the poison. Like the emotional reason why Hamlet kills Claudius is because Claudius killed Gertrude, not because Claudius killed his father. It's in the rush of the moment where the queen says, the king, the king, he did it. And Hamlet goes off and revenges the one person he didn't want to revenge the entire play. Right. He revenges his mother instead of his father. 
Mm. Just that's just wonderful Shakespeare stuff. You know, yeah. that's true to revenge play too. You always revenge the, for the wrong reasons. Oh, okay. That's very typical. Huh. Okay, so uh, just a few kind of rapid fire questions. Your your answers don't have to be rapid fire. Um, is there anything that seemed really huge to you at the time, maybe as a younger actor, that just took up a lot of mental energy that looking back, you're like, geez, I don't know why I, I worried about that as much or I paid as much attention to it? Um, there was a time when I was sort of early career and ACT was the big, the big game in town. And I did not get invited to join it for a few years when I thought I, I should have been in it. But, you know, I eventually was in it and had one or two really good years and one or two not very good years in it and moved on, basically. Mm-hmm. What do you think sets you apart from other actors? Um, why, do you, why do you think you stand out? I think part of it is I'm quick. I I always watch other actors and I think they're really really good. I I I I, I rarely it, when you get to a certain level of acting, I rarely think that anybody is not a very good actor. To be quite frankly, but I'm a very fast actor. I audition very well. I cold read very well. And, um, and is that just based on instinct? Do you think part of it is that I've been working in language for so long that if if a, if a scene is well written, I sort of scope out. Mm-hmm. In a cold reading, where the scene is going, without having read ahead, you know what I mean. Sure. Or if I read ahead once, I'm pretty sure that I know what the. I think of myself as the playwright's best friend. Hmm. I I almost this is not a boast. It's just I'm just saying what I think. I almost always sound like what the playwright heard in their ear. Hmm. Language is what I do, basically. You know. Uh, grammar. I was a grammar teacher for yeah. 20 years as well. So, you know, difficulties of expression or syntax or stuff like that, they don't, they don't bother me. Second one is I always try to draw every acting choice that I make out of the text rather than out of some place that I go elsewhere and then come back mm-hmm. some place in my personal life and come back. I almost always draw the text with the result is that I think my performance is end up feeling more uh, um, not hard to understand, not ambiguous. I think because I actually try to anchor everything that I do in what the playwright wrote, it seems like I'm, I am I am the character that I'm playing rather than playing it being something that I'm not. I, I, I don't know. That sounds boastful, but I remember when I was replacing Brutus in a big production of Julius Caesar that Mark Taper performed. They fired the Brutus three days before first performance, and I came in. I had done Brutus, not for a while, but, you know, I, I, I had a... I don't think I did it well, but I had a handle. I knew what I was doing. And I was very very much resented by the company because they really liked the guy that had mm-hmm. been fired. And I thought... And I felt the resentment very strongly, but I also felt like... They were playing Julius Caesar, and the real Brutus walked in. You know, I didn't quite know. I mean, I was just doing what the play required. Right, I didn't have I didn't have any interesting, fascinating take on it. I thought I was just doing what the play required. Well, they'd been doing all sorts of other things, you know. So, I'm, I'm basically a very naturalistic, realistic actor, mm-hmm. I think. And I get cast in these very extroverted parts, right? 
So it's an interesting it's well, an interesting mix for me. Yeah, and and I think about a lot of the Shaw you've done, the, the undershaft or, yeah, or yeah, you know, yeah. those misaligned, you know, those yeah, kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, like, these big characters, these big yeah, larger than yeah, life. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. I I'll tell you what it is, and I and I was explaining this before. It, 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 I know that I'm acting well. When I suddenly come to myself on stage and I realize for the last thirty minutes I have had no thought but the character's thought. Mm. I have not been aware of myself acting the character. All my thoughts, all my reactions have somehow, blessedly, for some reason, been the characters rather than mine. You know, what they call being in the zone. It doesn't last for long, you know. Then the audience laughs. You think, oh, how can I get a better laugh there? But then that's me. But there are periods in a time you go through every once in a while, if you're in a performance, and you suddenly realize, I... I was this other person for that period of time, and it was effortless. That's that's just a great feeling. What does being a professional mean to you? It is partially about being compensated for your work, but that's not all it's about. It's about being a craftsman at the level that you should get paid, even if you don't. In other words, uh, when I create a role... In a 99-seat theater for which I had paid $9, I'm still working at a professional level if the performance that I give is worthy of being paid $9,000. It's not the actual compensation that makes you a professional. It's the level of craft and commitment at which you work mm. for me. So I sometimes have given my best performance in auditions that I, it's cost me money to do, and I still consider myself professional. What would you... Tell your 25-year-old self, maybe, you know, a lot of people coming out of college, 22, 23, 24, 25. If you could go back and give yourself advice at that age, maybe with the twinkle, you know, the twinkle in that young day could die of like, oh, maybe I'll do this acting thing. But what advice would you give yourself? Well, for most people, 25 is too late. (laughs) I was very lucky. (laughs) All right, so somebody just out of college, they finish, okay. you know, and they're thinking, hey, I, I, I think I'd like to give this a shot. But, but I mean, really, you know, is, it, is, it, is there advice that you give yourself that you're like, geez, I really wish I had learned this had, or, or had understood yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. taken this on a little bit earlier? See, my track, my path to professionalism was so unlike anybody's that I know yeah. that I really hesitate to give advice about that. But one of the things I would say is become part of a group of fellow artists with whom you share goals, joys, and failures. Because in your young career, you may not be doing that many plays. You may be looking for work. You may not be doing that many plays. You may be waiting tables. You may be coding, you know, programming code. Uh, Who knows what you could be doing, but be a member of a family of artists. Because they will offer you emotional and artistic support that you can't get anywhere else, basically. And that's how all great theaters are formed out of, out of ensembles and companies of, of, of similar thinking, similar feeling people. Do not, do not get into the habit of evaluating your art by your success and love what you do. And don't, uh, if you complain, complain with good humor. If you don't get into a group of creative people who will try to be creative no matter what, you will get into a group of people who will basically complain no matter what. And that's 
toxic to your artistic life. Mm. You know, one of the things I always loved about Antius was a, there's the level of as a younger actor, Hey, here are all these actually working actors that you're around. So you're just kind of, you're just associating with the right people. So it, it doesn't seem so beyond the idea of yeah. maybe I will actually work professionally at some point because I'm hanging out with all these other people that do. But then it was also always very positive. I mean, people were always excited to be there in that, that, that positive atmosphere. And I know that's not the case in every other company in Los Angeles. No, I, there, I there think, can be that griping of why aren't we working more? Yeah, why aren't we I getting additions? I think that actually Antius grew out of a previous informal group that we had called Basilisk. Hmm. Bay Area stage actors living in Southern California. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, everybody who was in the San Francisco Bay Area, who was successful as an actor, came down to L.A. at one time or another, and often I rented them my apartment. So we used to have little basilisk dinners every once in a while with people, yeah. all of whom were excellent actors already. So there was no doubt about sure. that. But they had come to Southern California to try to crack that next level of TV and film acting. And we sort of hung out with one another and and supported one another and joked with one another and listened to one of his complaints, you know, and kept up with one another for a while. And it was, uh, I think, that well, Antius didn't grow out of that, but that was the same kind of impulse that led me to want to start Antius because they were extremely talented actors finding themselves in career frustration, not just because they weren't getting work, but because the work that they were getting was not satisfying to them artistically. And they needed to continue to have artistic satisfaction. Now that, for some of them, monetary satisfaction of being taken care of or wasn't being taken care of. Everybody, if you're an artist, you need to create. And and and, and Tia's offered them, however minimally, an opportunity to remain creative in the area where they were most skilled, classical theater, while they were searching for something else. You know, it wasn't waiting table. They were going to make money off it, but they were staying. Mentally healthy. In a certain sense, Antius was a mental health project. (laughs) (laughs) So with all the books you have just in your library here and all the the reading you've done, I'm wondering, are there any quotes that you live your life by or you think of often? Well, I'd give you Bible quotes, but... (laughs) Well, if it applies, if the shoe fits, I mean, if that's... Well, I like judge not lest you be judged. I know a lot of people think that I'm a very judgmental person. Um, my wife tells me people f- find me um, off-putting and um, critical. But I, 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 I don't think I am. I really try not to judge other people. Mm-hmm. Certainly personally. Sure. Artistically, I make my judgments all the time. You know, that's terrible for me. <laughs> but... Um, Art is not a luxury, you know. I feel I, I, I believe that. I believe everybody lives by lives lives their life partially by some fiction that they concoct about what life is. I think art is a nice one mm. to live your life by. Taken. Thank you so much for your time. I really really okay. enjoyed this yeah, conversation. That was fun. That was fun. Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. 
Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.